0: Thank you for attending Guild Investments' conference call slash webinar. On this webinar, we will be discussing managing volatility for investment success in 2019 and beyond. I'll give you some time to read the disclaimer. Please note, the conference call is designed to help investors with their global macro investment approach. We will not be able to answer or comment on questions pertaining to specific companies that we have not recommended. In addition, as an SEC-registered investment advisor, We may not be able to comment on specific stocks or other instruments due to conflicts of interest, insider information, and or other regulatory issues. We thank you for participating in this conference call and we look forward to helping you reach your investment goals. The conference call is scheduled for about an hour, a 30 minute presentation followed by a Q&A session. During the presentation, you may ask questions via chat box. We will try to answer all questions on this call, but if we are unable to answer your questions, please leave your contact information in the text box or you can email us at guild at guildinvestment.com and we'll be able to answer those specific questions. In addition, you'll be able to visit our website and sign up for our commentary that we publish on a weekly basis. And there you'll find our global macro analysis on a weekly basis sent to your inbox, typically every Thursday. On the call, we have Monty Gill, Chief Investment Officer, Anthony Danaher, President and Portfolio Manager. I'm Tim Sharada, Executive Vice President, and Rudy Von Abley, Senior Research Analyst. And I'd like to introduce Anthony Danaher, our President and Portfolio Manager.
1: Thank you for attending, listeners. I appreciate the uh, support, and hopefully we can uh, give you some good ideas as to how to manage a portfolio through volatile periods Uh, we just went through one in the fourth quarter of 2018 and I think we have some methods and portfolio techniques that we can use Um, on slide five we're going to go over just limiting the portfolio positions targeting 30% upside in 12 months maintaining a loss-cutting discipline, and understanding your own psychology as ways to reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio within a market that could be moving uh, quite aggressively up or down. So going to slide six, your portfolio, and we talk about limiting the portfolio to a maximum of 20 positions uh, through thorough, research, top-down, bottom-up research, pick a careful portfolio with a maximum of 20 positions, and much of this is a function of bandwidth. You want to avoid having a portfolio that's too large because it limits your ability to have thorough knowledge on each company and understanding all of the different cause and effect relationships that can make your companies in your portfolio go up or down. Uh, It helps you having a limited number of positions it helps you stay abreast of those current events affecting each company. Um, there are, If you have 20 portfolios, that's going to be 80 earnings conference calls over the course of the year. You're also going to have research reports and filings that you'd like to frequently read and to get to know those companies better, and it's just difficult to do with a large number of stocks that you might know a little bit about, and if you have too many stocks, you end up not being able to use your knowledge as a way to reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio. And then, thirdly, with too many stocks, it can make it difficult to create liquidity when you need it. When you get a good idea and you have too many stocks, it can take some time to navigate what to sell. So, what we'd like to do is we'd like to impart that if you have 20 positions that you know well, you don't need more than that. Um, And a lot of this is relying on your knowledge and your thorough research. And it's helpful just to have the flexibility to take a position off that's big enough where you can immediately replace it with something else should a better opportunity arise. And that moves us to slide seven, a better opportunity arising. When you're looking for investments, you want to get the risk reward right. You don't want to buy something with just 5 to 10% upside because, honestly, you're going to be wrong at times. So you want to make sure that you're being rewarded with enough potential upside given the risk you're taking for buying it. So we like to say 30% in 12 months and having a reward risk ratio of at least 3 or 4 to 1. And what does that mean? That means if you have a stock or a company you've identified could go up 30 or 40 percent and it could go down if one of the catalysts doesn't work out or a bad earnings release, it could go down 20 or 30 percent. That's not the three to four to one reward risk we'd like to see. I'd like to make sure that you know it well enough, know what the potential upside is, and that you can come up with a scenario where you can manage the downside, and three to four to one upside versus potential downside is our preferred way to do it. To achieve this, again, it's doing deep research, studying the company, its history, its current situation, its balance sheet, how fast its earnings are growing, if it's paying dividends, are those dividends rising? There's lots of different uh, elements to doing this type of research. And then when a position meets your objective, Reevaluate it continuously as the stocks move up or down. You're constantly reevaluating in your portfolio is there enough upside? Is the reward risk ratio accurate, or is it to paying you enough potential upside for the risk you're taking? And this is a continuous process in portfolios. And if you do this right, you'll find that you have a portfolio of stocks that you know a lot about and that you like and that you will be never with a basket of losers, so to speak, because you're going to basically be on them, understanding what's driving them, and also managing the the trading of it and always having good ideas coming into the portfolio and you're calling the weaker ideas. And while you're doing this investigating, it doesn't necessarily mean you always have to have 20 positions and be fully invested. While you're doing this investigating, if the market is such that you're not able to find Many positions that could go up 30% in 12 months or that the reward reward risk is not right, you can own cash and use that period to do the research while you've got uh, cash in the portfolio. Having cash in the portfolio is another way to manage through volatile periods. Number eight, this is an important one. Being disciplined in cutting losses. Employ an automatic loss cutting discipline. If a position loss reaches a position's loss reaches one-third to a quarter of the 12-month upside potential, then sell it. For example, if you've bought something that you thought had 30% upside in 12 months and it falls seven to 10%, it's time to sell it. If you've got a 50% potential upside in the stock, you might let it go 10, 12% before you sell it. And the reason you wanna do this is with 20 positions and you're cutting these losses, No one big position can cause a lot of damage to your portfolio. For example, if you have a position that is a 5% position and it goes down 7%, it doesn't take a huge bite out of your overall portfolio. Again, this is another way to manage the volatility of your portfolio regardless of what the market's doing. And then lastly, on slide nine, understanding your own psychology. And this is difficult and everybody is different. You have to ask yourself honestly, what are your broad goals? Are you saving for retirement? Is retirement five years away? Is it 15 years away? Do you want to create an income stream that you need now? Do you want to create an income stream that you will need later? Uh, Do you want to leave money for your heirs? And the time horizons, as we'll discuss before, of each of these are, are all different. So, with that in mind, what are your goals? You also have to understand when the market does decline, how do you respond to those short-term portfolio declines. If they're slow and methodical and just grinding down or moving sideways, maybe they don't bother you. But if it gets very volatile and has a steep decline like we saw in the fourth quarter of 2018, how does that affect you? Because understanding how it affects you will help you manage what your appropriate exposure should be. How many positions you should have in your portfolio and how aggressive should those positions be? But you need to understand how you will probably, how you are likely to react and what portfolio decisions may be based on emotion and not based on the underlying understanding of the investing process and where you are in your long term goals. So, what kind of portfolio will let you sleep at night? Would you like one that throws off a lot of dividends and cash? Or do you want one that uh, just seems to matriculate higher over time? Or are you comfortable with a portfolio that has some more volatility or beta that goes up and down more? Do you want a bunch of high growth stocks because the upside is greater, but understanding that you will probably take more you know downside swings in something that has a much more upside just based on the volatility in the relationship How fast something's growing what you often have to pay for how fast for a fast grower and the volatility of the position And then again mentioned it before but the time horizon on your investments each position your overall portfolio You've got goals in mind and with each position you might have a time horizon where you're just looking out 12 months some positions in your portfolio might have a time horizon of six months only. You've got a catalyst in mind, an earnings release, a couple of quarters, and you want to take that into consideration. You know What is your time horizon on each position? And then also what is the time horizon on the overall portfolio? And then whether you're doing this for yourself or having somebody else do it for you, these are the important things you need to understand and that you need communicated to whoever's managing a portfolio on slide nine is what your broad goals are your time horizon and how much volatility are you willing to tolerate your portfolio your savings your investment portfolio should be a comfort it shouldn't be an albatross and if it's keeping you up at night if it's constantly a drain on your overall quality of life then you probably need to change how it's invested to make it more comfortable. So these are just some of the techniques and methods that we do here, understanding that uh, the markets are gonna be volatile, but there are some things you can do within your portfolio to not have to white knuckle it through the market's rides. And moving to slide 10, I'd like to turn it over to Monte Gill to discuss uh, the volatility and uh, what to look forward to.
2: Hello, everyone. Um, In this section, we're going to talk about the global economy, where it stands and where it's going. And before we do that, I wanted to share with you one last point. We take it for granted around here because we do deep research and have done deep research for 40-some-odd years. But we have to remember that deep research includes meeting with company management, talking to competitors, suppliers, customers, understanding the business deeply. That's the bottom-up research. The top-down research includes looking at the global economic situation, economics, politics, and other events, social changes that are causing opportunity or diminishing opportunity in countries all over the world. Once you pick the right country, then you have to pick the right sectors within that country. For instance, video games were very hot in China, then the government decided they want to exert control. They took all the video companies and harassed them and said, you can't do this, you can't do that, and all of a sudden the video stocks in China collapsed. Well, then they turned around and said, okay, now there's going to be another growth phase. So, what happened was an opportunity may have been created by that collapse. But if you don't do deep macro, that is top-down, and micro, that is bottom-up research, by visiting companies, competitors, suppliers, attending conferences where the companies speak, meeting with the management at the breakout sessions of those conferences, listening to every quarterly conference call, reading every publication they publish with the SEC, required quarterly publications and annual publications, all of this is part of the research process. So now we're gonna talk about slide 10, the global economy, where it stands and where it's going, legacies of the Trump administration, investment opportunities in 2019 in the US and abroad. The volatility on page 11, number 11, the volatility experienced by the markets from October 17 to the present will last for a few more months or a year or two, but it is not a permanent new feature. It was caused by three things, high valuations for stocks at the time, a generalized fear that the economy had grown for a long period of time, and how much longer could it grow. And then Mr. Powell, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve, came out inexperienced at talking to Wall Street, although he'd been a very experienced financial executive, and said... um, We are going to keep tightening, it's on automatic pilot, and we're going to tighten throughout 2019 and in December of 18, implying there will be five more tightenings. This panicked the market and set off a selling spree that lasted for a number of weeks and took the market down substantially by about 10%, a little more. It took many stocks down by much more than 10%, especially the fast-growing, high-beta, high-multiple, glamour stocks. But what is the backdrop? If we go to page 12, we see, one, the U.S. economy is strong. The Chinese economy is weakening. But we believe it will recover by August of 2019 due to current and announced measures to expand credit. They began those measures about nine months prior to the return of uptrend, or 12 months prior, or 15 months prior. The Chinese have been gradually expanding their panoply, their offering of different measures to expand credit. And when China improves, this will help Southeast Asia, their workshop economies, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, and other areas where work is farmed out from China or work is migrated to from China for lower costs. Also among major economies, India is doing well. So the U.S. is doing well, India is doing well, China has been doing poorly, but will probably be doing well within six months. Europe is doing poorly, A generally socialist mentality means that they've decided they would rather sit in the cafe and take it easy than work very hard. So we expect this pattern to continue through 2019. We look for growth in Europe of 0 to 1% this year, and by any standards, unattractive. So the main culprits for global growth at the current time, if global growth is shrinking back, and it is, are China and Europe. We believe the China problem will be temporary, and by the second half of the year, starting in about August, China should pick up dramatically. Now let's go to slide 13. We see these trends as emerging from 2020 onward. Military power will fall in importance. Economic power and economic competition will determine global power. That is why these trade issues between China and the United States, but also between China and the world, because almost every other trading partner of China is also concerned about their behavior. It's not just the United States that feels they've done illegal and unethical things. Number two, more bilateral and regional alliances. That means we'll have trade agreements with Britain and individually with Germany and France, but not with the EU as a whole. Closer relationships between the US and India, India will do like China has done in the last 30 years. It will grow to be a global economic power. Since it's not a centrally planned top down economy, it will grow more slowly and more erratically than China, but it will still grow. 1.3 billion people and many highly intelligent people in India. Next. Productivity will rise, boosting economic growth, but economists currently underestimate this effect. Productivity is what really makes the world grow. It's not adding more plants, it's not more people being born, although all of those help. More capital being invested to build new plants and create new products to serve those people. That's all part of it, but bigger than that and a much bigger influence, according to economists and financial people, on how the world does is, is productivity per person hour growing. Does a person produce more widgets than they did 50 years ago, five years ago, five months ago? Uh, or in the case of services, can a service employee serve the customers better and get more productivity from his efforts or her efforts to improve the quality of offering to the customers. So this productivity is hard to measure, especially productivity which is created by technology. Economists really haven't figured out how to measure it. But as they do figure out how to measure it, they're going to realize that productivity is growing much, much faster than they had thought, which is leading to stronger world economic growth than than is being announced. So the world is actually doing better than people realize now page 14 three legacies of the Trump administration whether you like Trump or hate him he will have three major lasting historical significant effects that will reshape the investment markets first the US and everybody else is tired of Chinese Russian Iranian and North Korean cyber spying the theft of trade, technology, and manufacturing secrets. Because the United States is not the only country where this has been happening. It's been happening to every industrialized country and company for many decades. And now, for the first time, governments all over the world are taking notice and trying to do something about it there will be much tighter cybersecurity and national security going ahead. This is going to create great opportunities for companies in these areas, and it's going to create costs. But it's also going to keep our technology from being stolen and allow the productivity increases in this country to expand, not contract. Two, the end of multilateral trade agreements, which are now widely seen to have penalized high-tech growth economies and tilted the board toward poor and corrupt countries. Many of these multilateral trade agreements were done back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when we had part of our social service to the world, part of our foreign aid, was to give people a leg up in competing with us for trade. The election of Mr. Trump showed that many of the people whose jobs were diminished or removed by that policy didn't appreciate it, and they voted for a change agent in the form of Donald Trump. So what we have for a government is in a great part due to the fact that many of our um, multilateral trade agreements from the past penalized large portions of the working public in the United States, especially the lower-middle and middle-income public. Those people lost their jobs, lost their status in society, and became marginalized and became very disgruntled, so they got together and changed the politics in the country. Um, We also note that development funds that have come from the World Bank, from UN, and from other uh, global institutions have been diverted by dictators in Venezuela, in Argentina, in Zimbabwe. In Brazil, in Turkey, Iran, Cuba, Russia, and many other countries where you have unethical managements, they take these monies from the public institutions, from the global institutions and misuse them. The third, and this should cause a decrease in the U.S. economic budget, the U.S. budget, it'll be the end of a bloated U.S. military presence around the world, the end of bloated government in the U.S. Trump has simply not appointed many department officials and has allowed a lengthy shutdown, and now it looks like maybe a second one, all with no current effect, at least so far, on U.S. economic growth, which has improved significantly since 2016. He's talking about removing troops from Syria, making Germany, Japan, Korea... All other European countries, and the Philippines, all of whom we have been providing military services to since the end of World War II or the end of the Vietnam War, make them pay their own share. And um, all of this is something that will improve the U.S. budget and decrease U.S. spending. So that's positive. Those three things are going to shape the future because future administrations are not going to go back and build up the U.S. military abroad. They're not going to go back and start agreeing to pay for people's military expenses abroad. They're not going to go back to multilateral trade agreements or to allowing people to steal our trade secrets. So future administrations will keep these policies, and this will be good for growth of the economy. Now I'd like to turn. Um, some of the ideas we're talking about next uh, of what areas we like in the markets, U.S. and foreign, over to our senior our senior analyst who's done a very good job in these areas,
3: Rudy Van Rudy? Thanks, Pondy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so, we do see opportunities in 2019, uh, both abroad and in the United States. It's not just one or the other. Uh, So, starting with some of the uh, foreign opportunities that we see, we'll highlight Brazil again. We've talked about Brazil a lot in our newsletter over the past months. Uh, You may know if you've been following the news that uh, Brazil went through a long period of uh, a big corruption scandal that ended up putting former leaders in jail and being indicted for various things and and, uh, being put out of office and finally ended in the election of um, a Brazilian politician named Jair Bolsonaro who is controversial for a a variety of reasons uh, but is well received by the international uh, financial and investment community as being business friendly. Uh, He doesn't have a lot of ties to to Brazil's uh, corrupt past. He's seen as a clean dealer and as someone who has... um, The the, uh, political capital to make some real changes, some real reforms in Brazil. So for that reason, even though the Brazilian markets have moved ahead a lot since uh, his election, we think that they can continue to move ahead, the bonds and the currency in particular, and uh, we're watching equities for corrections that might be appetizing. Uh, Japan also, we believe the yen is going to rise this year against the U.S. dollar. Um, Japan often gets short shrift because they're viewed as a growthless economy where the population is aging and no one wants to have children and productivity has disappeared and, and so forth and so on. That turns out not to be really the case. Japan is actually making some changes um, that are that are going to be positive, bringing more women into the workforce in particular. They've been behind a lot of the rest of the developed world in that regard, uh, but they're making up ground. Uh, they're also making up ground by keeping people in the workforce later than they have usually been in the workforce and uh, later than they're in the workforce in other countries. So. Um, in in Japan, as the as the uh, life expectancy continues to rise, people are increasingly working later and later into their late 60s, into their 70s, even into their 80s um, and enjoying it from the reports that we have read. Uh, In India, we believe the rupee is likely to fall, but we believe that Indian stocks are likely to rise even after taking this rupee depreciation into account. We continue to be basically bullish on India. We see a long term positive change. Having happened several years ago with the election of Narendra Modi, we continue to watch the situation in India carefully to make sure that the impetus for reform and the the gradual reforms that Mr. Modi is implementing are continuing to make progress. And of course, there always continue to be back and forth. Uh, election victories and election setbacks in different Indian states. Uh, India can be a very, it's not a top-down command economy the way that China is, so it can be fractious and it has a, a vibrant uh, political life, so we watch that closely, but we continue to be bullish on on India in the long term. Within the United States, uh, we continue to like many of the of the suspects that we have liked uh, for a long time. We continue to like cybersecurity for reasons given above. We think this is a long term theme that will be very long lasting. Uh, many industries continue to basically have a blank check. Companies, uh, cybersecurity departments have a blank check for management because of the terrible optics that result for them when there are cybersecurity breaches. So uh, cybersecurity, software, we continue to like, uh, cloud providers, artificial intelligence, the data center services, basically anything that will cost, co- cut costs for corporates, uh, we continue to like. We like travel and entertainment. Uh, We like high yielding energy stocks if oil gets too cheap, if it gets under $50 a barrel, Uh, assuming that interest rates are not rising too much, that they remain constrained. Uh, We like home builders and we like dividend payers who are capable of maintaining and growing their dividend over time. further opportunities. We see opportunities in gold and silver. Um, gold, as always, is uh, a vote of no confidence in, in, uh, in government, and it's also, uh, to some extent, uh, a vote of no confidence in the U.S. dollar. If the U.S. dollar weakens um, and if there continues to be turmoil surrounding Renegotiation of trade agreements throughout the world that will be constructive for gold and silver silver of course is a bit different because it's an industrial material as well but gold has underperformed for several years, so we think that there is some opportunity for gold to appreciate this year uh, now what we would avoid um, uh in in these areas first. Uh, We note apparel, and uh, to some extent, this is an anecdotal observation that we have made, but we've seen that um, many in the upcoming generation, uh, the millennials and the Gen Zs, uh, they... Resemble some older generations in interesting ways, particularly the the, uh, pre-World War II generation in their thrift. And we've noticed a a tendency for them to value thrift more than in this country, in the United States, that is, to value thrift uh, more than they value conspicuous consumption. That trend is not necessarily the case in China, but it is a trend that we have observed in the United States. So we're cautious on apparel. Uh, Airlines in general, are uh, an industry that seems to have a hard time getting out of its own way, and uh, they often have difficulty with capacity issues, so we do not favor airlines. And we would exercise caution with some industries that are experiencing global oversupply, uh, including autos, including heavy manufacturing, and some uh, basic materials. And then, in general, uh, we would avoid and be cautious about companies with no cash flow or too much leverage, and we believe this is going to be something that's particularly uh, important important to watch over this year and in, in coming years. Um, we, in kind of wrapping all of these observations together, we have instituted a uh, program here um, that we call the uh, wealth builder dividend portfolio management. Um, back in January 2016, some of our clients who are retirees asked us if the Guild could offer accounts that would hold income-producing securities and yet would not suffer like bonds as interest rates rose in 2016 and beyond. So for these portfolios, we selected 15 or 20 dividend-paying common and preferred stocks that we believe could be used to create income for clients uh, during a rising interest rate period. And um, in consonance with the, the remarks we, we just made, we, uh, we picked stocks which could pay dividends in excess of the return on, on uh, longer-term treasury bonds, and which we believed could increase uh, those dividends. So. Uh, The results have been good, and uh, losses are always possible, but we think that the landscape is good looking forward in a rising interest rate environment. Uh, If you want any information about this program, you can go ahead and send an email to uh, our client relations man, Aubrey Ford, here at Guild Investment. Um, So with that, um, I will pass it back to Tim, and we'll see what we have in the queue for Q&A.
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, There is a chat box that is available online where you can uh, submit your questions. I do see a few out there right now. We also received some questions prior to the call. Uh, We're going to address one of those questions now. And one of the questions is about gold and gold miners.
1: Hi, this is Tony. <clears throat> so uh, we mentioned briefly we found gold find gold to be attractive at this stage. Gold is looking at a situation different than what we have from 2011 to 2018 in that uh, many central banks have really started to ramp up their buying of gold in recent months. And this comes on the heels of what you had in August and September of 2018 when several central banks, Argentina, Turkey, Venezuela, were having to dump their gold because their currencies were collapsing. So what you have now is you have a situation where gold is now a preferred purchase by central banks. Many central banks around the world are adding to their gold reserves. Um, at the same time, new discoveries have been... Uh, Not very prolific. And there's one big discovery that was announced last week in Russia, but that isn't expected to come online, start producing gold until 2025. And my guess is those are optimistic estimates just because uh, mining takes uh, longer than people plan. But you just haven't had tremendous discoveries, and you've got central bank uh, demand. You have demand from the Middle East, you have demand from Indians. Even though India has changed the rules with respect to purchasing gold, there is a uh, growing demand from people around the world who are getting more wealthy, who are accumulating wealth to put some of that into gold. And it looks like, uh, which is what we had from 2003 to 2011 when gold was going a lot, going up considerably. It wasn't. Rampant inflation. It wasn't necessarily the uh, the problems with the banking system. A lot of it was just the fact that throughout the world, many emerging market populations were getting wealth and accumulating wealth for the first time, and a portion of that went into gold. And you're starting to see that now again as the cycle has uh, come back. Gold is a favored purchase for a percentage of the. Uh, Money out there being spent by central banks and by investors and savers around the world. Another question that came up uh, that uh, we, we've discussed here frequently is you're right now getting into the teeth of an election season, 2019 and 2020. You're going to have a lot of people throwing their hat into the ring for the presidency next year, and the market is going to have to navigate some uh, very odd, strange, uh, idealistic, aggressive proposals from the people as they throw their hat into the ring. And as the market navigates it, it will create some volatility. It will create some opportunity. But it is uh, definitely something that uh, the U.S. market will uh, look at. It will affect the value of the dollar. It will affect how much money is coming into the u s from around the world, and it'll also affect how people view the likelihood of you know certain programs that uh, and certain wealth redistribution programs. So the market will have to navigate these it's uh, you know early, but this is just something that the market is going to do, and the elections are still quite a ways off, but uh, the the politics will be ever more in the forefront of the market psychology. Tim has another question, one moment.
0: We have a question uh, just came in. You've ID'd some good investment areas but you, you with your areas to avoid. It seems you're less than wildly bullish. Does this indicate you're closer to the end of this bull run? Uh, Monty would like to answer that question.
2: Hi, Monty here. Um, we don't think that we're at the end of this bull run. The basic outlook for the market has been frightened since October when we got a pullback, then a little rally, then a big decline in December. We believe that it depends on corporate profits, which we're fond of saying is the reason the market goes up and down. What are corporate profits doing? Corporate profits in the United States this year will probably be up about 5 to 7 percent. Many pessimists are coming out and saying, Oh, there won't be any growth in corporate profits this year. And in fact, in the first, others are saying, in the first half of this year, you could have a decline in corporate profits. Clearly, last year's growth of corporate profits, which now that the fourth quarter is included in, will be over 20 percent, partially because of economic growth and investment, reinvestment, and you know, hiring, partly because of tax cuts, but for all of those reasons, one-third from the tax cuts or 7 8% from the tax cuts, 12%, 13 14% from growth, yes, you're going to have a slower growth this year because you had very fast growth last year, but you're not going to have negative growth, in our view, or no growth. We think the world economy will pick up in the second half of 2019 as China picks up. We think the fear based of viewers and the uh, people who are worried are wrong. And we basically believe there'll be no recession in the United States in 2019. The market is a discounting mechanism. It usually starts down six to 12 months before a recession begins. So when will the recession occur? Will it recur in 20? We don't think so. We think in 20 you could have a quarter or two where GDP growth is flat, or maybe down one quarter and up a little the next. You could have slow growth, but we don't see any real recession, and certainly not a big recession, unless some central bank somewhere in the world makes a big mistake and creates a banking crisis. If you want to look for those, we think if one of those were to happen, it would most likely be coming from either Europe or China. So right now, assuming no banking crisis from Europe or China, we're not looking for the end of the market in this
0: year at all. Uh, There's a follow-up question in regards to Japan. If the yen rises as much of of the Nikkei will suffer earnings cuts, are you referring solely to domestic Japanese stocks? Hello.
2: Um, We think Japanese stocks will not be hurt particularly by a rising yen. I should speak up. Um, We don't think the uh, Japanese market will be hurt by a rising yen. We think the yen is the most undervalued of the global currencies at the present time. The uh, dollar is probably the most overvalued of the major global currencies. And we wouldn't be surprised to see the yen rise versus the dollar. And we anticipate modest economic growth out of Japan in 2019 of 2 or 3% uh, GD, real GDP growth. And uh, maybe uh, a little bit of inflation, so a little bit higher than that. Corporate profits in Japan might be up 5 or 6%. They've weathered this whole boom-bust cycles of the past very well and they've been very prudent in recent years. We think Japanese companies are well-situated in general.
0: We have a question. Do you see any form of sovereign debt crisis, lack of confidence in the governments because of the level of sovereign debt? That's part one. And then is there likely to be a pension crisis because of this current low interest rates?
1: The... uh, Concerns about the growing debt, whether it be public, private, is one of the things the market frequently comes back to. And it's it's not healthy, but one of the things that uh, is, looks like it's gonna be a constant in the future is that central banks will manage the growing debt piles through further debasement of the currencies, through buying up assets, this is a strategy that uh, looks like it saved us from the worst-case scenario in 2007-8. Even though many people before that would have uh, thought it to be, you know, very unprudent, but now it's become a common practice. And I do think that uh, with the debt that's being accumulated, the debt that's being issued by sovereign countries around the world, it, it is is uh, it is going to require more money printing more larger, larger central bank balance sheets, certain countries will have currency crises. Certain countries will run into problems because their overall economy and economic productivity and perhaps their system of government, their system of business and how they tax and how they handle wealth and whether or not they have innovation are gonna be better situated for this than others. But the bottom line is over the long term, it looks like asset prices denominated in diminishing value currencies is one of the ways that policymakers around the world will handle the debt. You know, money has a story about getting some savings bonds as a gift in the 40s and 30 uh, year saving bonds, uh, you, or 20 years later, you cash them in and they buy almost nothing. This is not a new phenomenon, even though it got really. <coughs> Uh, exaggerated and amplified during the Great Recession in 2007 9. this is not a new phenomenon. The management of debt through monetary debasement looks like it's uh, just part of the prescription. Uh, And the second question on the pensions, Uh, pensions in low interest rates. Pensions have been talking to companies. One of the there's a gentleman that we study his work. One of the reasons you've had so many buybacks is because pensions need the interest rate support from corporates and have been loaning money to corporates to buy their stock back. and you know while you do get uh, complaints about the value of stock buybacks, we don't see them ending anytime soon. It probably accelerates. Because of the low interest rates, a lot of portfolios like pensions, like insurance companies that might have strict mandates with fixed income being the largest position in their portfolio, they're forced to get creative and reach out further into risky assets and loaning money to corporates uh, to, to make those uh, actuarial assumptions. And those actuarial assumptions are high. It's uh, There are certain public pensions that are, for all intents and purposes, bankrupt, but that is not new. Um, There are a lot of corporate pensions that have actually, because of uh, the the good economy, have been doing a good job of uh, taking care of their long-term obligations. So it's it's a mixed bag. Certainly, some pensions are in trouble, but others are not.
0: We also have a follow-up question in regards to commodities and silver. What are your thoughts on silver?
2: Um, We like copper more than silver. We think silver can rise, but silver has its industrial component uh, in addition to its savings component. Gold is our favorite among metals. Our second favorite among metals would be copper. Why copper? It's an industrial metal completely. That's very true, whereas silver is only partly an industrial metal. And we're not saying we don't think silver can rise. We just don't think it will rise as fast as gold. We think copper will rise because A, a recovering economy in China, and B, if you look at the sectors of the world economy that are growing rapidly, communications, telecommunications, electronic communications are growing fast. A major part... Of the infrastructure for all these types of communications is copper. Therefore, copper will be in demand. How about supply? Copper supply has been um, under attack in certain countries in Latin America where a lot of copper comes because of uh, dislike for the management and the companies, and there's strikes and there's Uh, unsafe mining practices and so on. So for all of these reasons, we think copper supply will be growing much more slowly than copper demand. We see higher prices for copper. A
0: follow-up question in regards to corporate profits and earnings growth. U.S. earnings are rolling over into Q1 at this time. When there there has been a sharp rally in January, are we facing a recession and, and lower prices? We do not believe we're
2: facing a recession. Yes, the market does not react to events that are taking place right at that moment. The market is a discounting mechanism. It reacts to events expected in the future. The market has now been rallying because stocks got too cheap after the big decline at the end of last year and people had anticipated that we were going into a serious economic collapse in 2019 when the first quarter of 2019 corporate profits come in. Some people are even saying we could have only 5% corporate profit growth in um, Q4. Well, we had 15, 16% corporate profit growth for the 80% of the S&P 500 that's reported so far. Very strong. And um, when you add that 16% or even better, to the 24% for the first three quarters, you get a year with over 20% growth. Certainly we won't have that in 2019, we're coming down from a major uh, economic boom caused by the tax cuts and caused by uh, fast economic growth. Um, As a result of that, you have lower growth rate this year than you had last year, but we do not believe the growth rate will be lower than zero this year, we think it will be corporate profit growth five to seven percent, GDP growth two point six percent, two point three, two point six percent in two thousand and nineteen in the United States. We believe global GDP growth will be three and a half percent this year because of big contributions from India, some contribution from China, and contributions from the United States. Certain segments of the world economy, especially in Europe, are growing very, very slowly. Russia has benefited from higher oil prices. We can think of Russia, although it's a big country, as basically a commodity producing country. All of their profits come from commodities. Commodity prices are not breaking, so Russia is not going to break. Commodity prices are beginning to rise because economic growth could speed up. A little bit in the second half of 2019 on a global basis, so we do not see a recession in 2019. This is the same drum we've been beating for a year when people first started worrying about a 2019
0: recession a year ago. Question about the Fed raising interest rates. If so, how much?
1: About three months ago the expectation was for four interest rate increases between uh, as Monty mentioned earlier, from December through the end of 2019. If you just look at what the expectations are by investors, they're down considerably. One to two interest rate increases this year. The next, uh, the next move, according to some prognosticators, is that will actually be a cut in interest rates. But that doesn't look likely. If you look, if you look at the jobs data, the jobs report for the month of january that was announced on the first friday in february it's just too strong to start pricing in interest rate decreases due to a weakening economy it's just uh, yes the chinese trade negotiations are front and center they're happening right now the government shut down the lasted for longer than past government shutdowns was happening at the time, and people were very concerned about how the impact on U.S. economic growth. But in spite of all that, the U.S. economy just tends to throw off good economic growth, and so there will be uh, probably some higher rates, but certainly not the four interest rate increases the Fed had originally talked about. Another question, this uh, goes along with interest rates. You had corporate credit was very weak in the fourth quarter and it's had a nice rally and the main reason for the rally is the reduction in the anticipated number of interest rates so you have uh, companies that are able to sell their bonds at at lower interest rates at higher values and i just think that the overall market tone responded very favorably to chairman powell's kind of change in tune that the Fed was going to be patient. I believe they mentioned the word "patient" uh, a dozen times or more in their last uh, press release, and that's really uh, helped corporate bond spreads, helped bonds overall, and interest rates have continued to move down. Global liquidity is uh, liquidity is what drives markets higher and capital flows. And one of the things that people have been worried about with respect to falling global liquidity is that central banks like the US have allowed their balance sheets to shrink from their very high levels that they were hitting in the years following the financial crisis. But what we see is plenty of global liquidity out there. The the, the stocks and the market's reaction to the shrinking of balance sheets is going to, it will create volatility but the central banks have merely to push a few buttons to let bonds run off to start purchasing. And we believe that over time, if the economy gets too weak, they will just go back to building their balance sheets larger again. But as of right now, it was one of the concerns in the uh, late 2018, it's become less of a concern. That doesn't mean it won't become a concern again, but uh, the Europeans the Japanese, the U.S., they do not seem to be very aggressively uh, tightening. And, uh, you know, on balance, at some point, we expect they'll be loosening again. If, if Europe stops QE, who will buy the debt and at what rate? The European Central Bank and the European authorities in Brussels have been telling the European banks for years that they need to buy this debt, this debt that pays almost nothing. These Bonds are owned by institutions that have been told to own them or they have in their mandate that they need to owe them, own them. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's going to be some time before you get a large increase in European interest rates as long as they have uh, banks and institutions under their control in Europe to buy these.
2: Swiss franc has been the world's best currency for many years. We see no reason why it shouldn't continue to be a very strong currency, stronger than other European currencies. The Swiss are independent, they're tough-minded, and they don't go for the modern cultural Marxism that seems to be managed running many other economies in Europe. So we anticipate that the Swiss will continue to have a strong currency. We don't see it going up dramatically from here, but just continuing to be strong. What we do think is the cost of moving to Switzerland, because you have to buy your citizenship by making a substantial financial contribution to the government, um, will go up. I remember you used to be able to become a Swiss citizen with a Swiss visa, permanent resident visa for $10 million. That's much higher today. And it will continue to go
3: higher over the long
2: run.
0: These are all great questions. Unfortunately, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, this, the call is scheduled for an hour. We're at 1157 right now. Uh, we've gotten a few questions in regards to 401k and how, how to be able to uh, save, some, uh, save some money on the transaction costs as well as increasing your performance. Please feel free to send us an email if you'd like to know how to do that. Uh, our email address is guild at com. Once again, that is guild at guildinvestment.com. And um, if, you have, if you currently have a 401k or you have any relatives that do have one, we'd love to share that tip with you and um, in our communications, either by email or by a call. Yes, I, I see that we do have a lot of uh, some questions here, and we aren't able to address all of them. So uh, we will address those questions uh, personally through our emails to you. As well as in future commentaries that we have. But th- thank you for all your questions. We, we do appreciate it, and we can hope we can answer all of them, all the questions that you asked. If you'd like to listen to this conference call, the, a, a replay will be available in about one or two days, more on the one day side. Uh, look out for an email. An email will be sent to you with uh, login credentials or how to access that call. Uh, if you like a copy of this deck that we've created, please email guild at guildinvestment.com and ask for the deck, and we would gladly email that this deck to you. Thank you for participating in this conference call. We are a registered investment advisor and offer investment management services designed to help you reach your retirement and investment goals. If you'd like to learn more information about some of the services we offer or just like to get a second opinion uh, about your current portfolio, we'll, we'd love to review that portfolio for you. Some It might be find the way you're doing it but it's always a good idea to get a second opinion and you can give us a call at 310-826-8600 once again that telephone number is 310 or you can email us at guild at guildinvestment.com you can find us at www.guildinvestment.com as well as on social media which is facebook thank you twitter linkedin and also instagram thank you very much for participating in the call and we look forward to talking to you soon